Good morning to you, and the Lord bless you. We'll bow in prayer. Our Father, as we come to the end of this time of conference, we do so with hearts full of praise and worship to you, how good you have been to us. We thank you for delightful weather, for the wonder of Christian fellowship, for friends old and new, for the blessing, the wondrous blessing of your own precious word. And Lord, as I think of this, I pray your rich blessing on those who will stay when we are gone, for students who are still looking to you for guidance, and for staff who have so delightfully cared for us. Lord, be pleased to bless them. Be pleased to bless those, the backroom people who are so busy now that we might be fed. We give you thanks for all who serve you in any form, in any way. And now again, as we turn to your word, be pleased to take this precious, precious word and break it small and feed our hearts. And we ask this prayer expecting nothing but blessing, for we ask it through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. This is the eighth message I've given in this series, and I've called it, What's Missing? in your Christian life. In a sense, it's an analysis on Christian failure because experience has shown me through the many years in all the countries to which I go that our good churches, our evangelical churches, are by and large filled with defeated Christians who are relying on programs and gimmicks and antics and all kinds of things to introduce life into the church. Totally sincere, and yet failing so often. And so I've been talking about seven so far of the things that are missing. Uh, maybe in your life too. Maybe they aren't. Maybe they are. But I pray that these messages, especially on the tape, will go and speak to people I'll never see. I'm just reviewing each message and lining them up and show how they all fit together. We began by talking about the missing experience. And I'm so glad Major Thomas was here to expound on that. The missing experience is you are complete in Christ. Colossians 2.10. Not you will be. That isn't a future tense. It's a today in your experience. And yet we live so, such incomplete lives. And in an amazing way, not only am I complete in Christ, but Christ is complete in me. And that's why the churches are so debilitated. Because, because he doesn't get a chance to be complete in us. Then we spoke about the missing word. And we saw how, how remarkable it is that the Lord constantly used the word repentance. Right through, even when he was in glory, writing those seven letters, five of them, uh, concentrated on remember and repent. And we saw what repentance was. It isn't being sorry. And there's no substitute for repentance. Tithing is no substitute. Bible study, prayer, sincerity. There's no substitute for repentance. And there's a great absence of the preaching on repentance in our churches today. And repentance is simply emptying my hands of all the garbage that I am and have and receiving all that he is for all that I need. That's Colossians 2, 6. As you have received him, so, so continue, so walk ye in him. 
repentance. And then we went on to talk of the, the missing name. So simple, especially at Christmas time in the first chapter of Matthew. The angel said to Joseph, thou shalt call his name Jesus. And the chapter ends, he called his name Jesus. But then it says, they shall call his name Emmanuel. And the trouble is, they don't. They call his name Jesus. Thank God all the songs we've sung this morning are about Jesus. We haven't sung a song about Emmanuel this week. Not one. And yet Emmanuel is just as important as Jesus. In fact, from Romans 5.10, it's much more. Because Jesus is what he did. And Emmanuel is who he is. And we found that Emmanuel, see, the, the tremendous importance of Emmanuel was given to Ahaz, surrounded by his failure, come to the end of his rope with nowhere to turn. His whole world had fallen to pieces and he refused God's offer. And God said, never mind. Someday a virgin will bear a son, call his name Emmanuel, and he'll be the answer to all such people with their failure and their distress. The missing name. Then we thought of the missing privilege. And how strange it seemed when I started. Suffering is a missing privilege. But then we learned that we have the privilege of going to the same school that Jesus went to. That's a privilege. Surely it is. And we saw how God deliberately planned suffering into the life of his son. One, that he might be made complete. Two, that he might learn obedience. And we are incomplete people, and we are disobedient people. And the two things we need are completeness and obedience, and you can only get them through suffering. That's why it's a privilege to go to the same school that Jesus went to. Then we spoke of the missing rest, and how, how important that is in our churches today. People running themselves ragged, trying to be involved in, quote, Christian service. And we, we saw the Lord saying, come. What was the next word? Do you remember? Come. Take. The next word, learn. And then what? Then you find rest. So easy. Come. Take my yoke upon you. Get involved with me. Then learn of me. And then you find rest. As easy as that, you find rest. It's there. Then we spoke of the missing success. Can anybody give me the definition for success? Success is. I thought you were students. And I said, write it down. But uh, you see, I used to be a school principal once for 15 years. Uh, you, you better write it out a hundred times or something like that. <laughs> Obedience is. Success is. Obedience is to the known, revealed will of God. That's the most important thing, regardless of the consequences. And we look at the consequences, and God looks for the obedience. And if your eyes are on the consequences, you'll never know what success is. But if you concentrate on the obedience, success will come automatically. God's idea of success. Because our idea of success is bigger and better. But God says, no, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Your ways aren't my ways. So sometimes success is bigger. Sometimes it is better. 
but very often it isn't. And we saw in Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, all God promised them was failure. That was God's plan for their life, failure. That's why these men are mm, a major prophet. I would never have signed on for a job like that. You wouldn't either. Signing on for a job, 40 years of failure, and that was your, your, your plan. And some of us grumble if we don't have excitement every day. And Jeremiah had nothing for 40 years. And he still finished up by saying what? Do you remember in Lamentations 3? Great is thy faithfulness. That's how he, we sing about it and he lived it. For 40 years, not one word of encouragement. And at the end he says, great is thy faithfulness. He didn't have his eyes on his success, he had his eyes on his faithful God. And if we kept our eyes on the faithfulness of God, we'd have the peace of God. Then yesterday, for Thanksgiving, we thought of the missing Thanksgiving. Psalm 116, how can I show my gratitude to God? Three things, do you remember these? I will take, I will pay, I will offer. I will take, I will pay my vows. I will offer the sacrifice of thanksgiving. That's how you say thank you. You don't send God a thank you card. Be nice when some people send you a thank you card, that's nice, but uh, God doesn't want a thank you card. He just wants, I will take, I will pay, I will offer. And that's what Jesus did. He took and he paid and he offered. Now this morning, I want to talk about the missing witness in the life of the believer. And we'll start in uh, the book of Acts and chapter 2. Sorry, chapter 1, Acts chapter 1. The verse you've known all your Christian life, but there may be some things you've missed as you've looked into it. Because as you've seen all the way through, as Major Thomas said, the there's nothing new in this. It isn't a new gimmick that uh, he invented a few years ago and put the label torchbearer on top of it. That isn't it at all. It, it's right the way through the Word of God. So Acts chapter 1, verse 6. This is in the presence of the risen, victorious Christ. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. Now that verse came to me with extra emphasis just recently. I hear of people talking about the second coming, thank God they do, then they try working out the ifs and the ands and the buts and the shalls and the can'ts. And they write books on it. And they, they put sermons out about it. And the Lord Jesus said, it isn't for you to know the times or the seasons, so forget it. It isn't for you to know the times or the seasons. And when people say, do you think the coming of the Lord is near? I say, I hope so, but it isn't for me to know. It isn't for you to know. And he didn't say this to some little nobody. He said it to the big shot. It isn't for you to know the times or the seasons. 
I'm not in any way denying the teaching on the teaching of the second coming as long as you emphasize the great truth in 1 John. He that hath this hope in him, what? Purifies himself. If the teaching of the second coming doesn't lead to a purified life, you're just wasting God's time. He that hath this hope in him purifies himself. But the verse I want, of course, is verse 8. You shall receive power after that the Holy Spirit is come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. That wonderful, marvelous last verse of our Lord Jesus as indicated in the book of Acts. You shall receive power. Now, this verse can come as a great encouragement to many of you. I like to find messages that bring encouragement. We spoke about success to encourage people who don't see any results. Now, this is also an encouraging thought here. These men to whom he's speaking, they'd had three years of Bible school with only one teacher. And yet that didn't qualify them to be witnesses. They had seen everything Jesus, every miracle he ever did. They heard every message he ever preached. But that didn't qualify them to be witnesses. Look, for example, at the end of uh, John chapter 20, verse 30. Many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. Uh, the last verse of, the, of John's Gospel. There are also many other things which Jesus did, the which if they should be written, everyone, I suppose, even the world itself could not contain the books that could be written. But these men had seen everything, had heard everything, they knew everything, but they weren't qualified to be witnesses. Now, I stress that because I meet people who say, well, when I know enough and when I've learned enough, then I'll be a witness. You don't witness on the basis of what you know. You witness on the basis of what you have become, as we've heard so powerfully from Major Thomas. It's an interesting fact, and you can check that in your own life in many cases. The most exciting, often fruitful time in a Christian's life is the first six months after the faith. Because all they know is once I was blind, but now I can see. And so they go bang, bang, bang on that. Then they start to uh, witness on the basis of what they know. And the result rate goes down and down and down. Interesting fact that. You shall receive, and then you shall be. And so if you're a new Christian, or if you aren't very good at memorization, or if you haven't learned a lot of doctrine, don't worry. You're not going to be a witness on the basis of what you know, but of what you have become. If any man be in Christ, he is what? A totally new creation. And what they want to see is a totally new creation, like we saw with Isaiah. Do you remember with Isaiah? First of all, these, these wings of the seraphim indicated one First of all, their first job was worship. The second thing was their walk, and then was their work. Just the same. Your worship of a holy God, 
your walk which is based on your worship of the Holy God, then your work which is just a reflection of your walk which is the worship of the Holy God. And that's it. Be encouraged with that. Don't wait until you've learned this, 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 and this before you move into being a witness. You shall receive and then you will be. And then you will be. Now that's the promise that he gave. As time allows, I want to talk on four simple things. The promise, the power, the plan, and the program. That's the promise. You shall receive and then you'll be. And if you've received, then you have become. And what kind of a witness you are uh, all depends on you. Not on him. Because he's there. And where he is, is all the power you need. It all depends on you. Now, the power. You shall receive power. You shall receive power. I want to illustrate this thought by uh, a simple story. In England, uh, or shall I say Britain, was the first nation to build a nuclear power station. And it was built at a place called Calder Hall, not very, very far from Tapenray in England. Calder Hall on the coast, the first ever nuclear power station. It's still there, still in operation. Since then, of course, many others have been built. Uh, America was building the first nuclear-powered submarines, and we were building the first nuclear power station, and we exchanged information. I'm glad our countries work together. I wish they did so more often. Uh, we now, in Britain, are building more nuclear power stations, and we are using the American pattern, not the British pattern. That's an interesting. Uh, you in America have ceased or have got a thing against nuclear power stations. Of course, you have other sources. We have no hydroelectric power in Britain, but we're building nuclear power stations. But this is about Calder Hall, the first nuclear power station ever built. And I happened to be taking a series at Cape and Ray that, that year, in the summer, and one of the guests there was the man who was the assistant director of Calder Hall Power Station. And of course, the, the first nuclear power station was the eighth wonder of the world. No one had ever seen one before or ever heard of it. And here we in Britain had it operating at Calder Hall. And so as the week went by, I had a chance to speak to this man. And I said, tell me, friend, how do you produce the power at Calder Hall? And he looked at me and he said, I'm sorry, uh, but... We don't produce power. I said, excuse me, but, uh, and you need to know this, the usual electrical power stations in Britain are, are, are or were in some cases, still are, filthy places. They bring in truckloads of coal, they burn the coal uh, in uh, boilers, they turn water into steam, the steam turns a dynamo, that makes electricity. It's a very old-fashioned way, a very dirty way, because you get uh, smoke coming out of these chimneys, and sometimes, uh, if you live near a power station, you have soot falling all around you. If you're a mother and you're hanging, you're washing out, you get all your soot on your washing. They build taller chimneys, but that just means the people get the soot who live further away. It's always burning black coal. 
And when I, I had seen this powder hall, and there were no truckloads of coal, so I said to this man, I said, friend, I passed your station the other day, and I saw no truckloads of coal. I saw no tall chimneys. I, I saw no black smoke being vomited out into the air. But I saw the pylon and the 33,000 volts. That's the way they did 33,000 volts. Little jets of steam, uh, a science fiction building, but no dirt. I said, uh, there was no dirt, but I saw the pylon. I saw the wires. He said, I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, but we don't produce power. Then as he looked at me, his eyes screwed up and twinkled, and his mouth went up, and he burst out laughing. I said, what's the joke? He said, well, we don't produce power. He said, the power is in the uranium rod. And God invented that. He put it there. All we have learned, we have learned the secret of taking uranium rods, putting them in a reactor, and then releasing a power which already exists. And as he said that, I got excited. I said, well, that's just like a Christian. He said, sure. He says, hasn't anybody ever told you the God of creation is the God of redemption? And that was my series for the week at Cape and Ray. So he threw it back at me. And, uh, and we laughed together. And I said, but that's, that's marvelous. He said, it is, isn't it? He said, it's really fantastic. Because a nuclear power station doesn't produce power. All it does is release a power which already exists. And one other scientist said to me, he said, Johnny, it's really more exciting than that because if you look inside a reactor, it's in the shape of a cross. He said, the power is in the cross. I said, this gets more wonderful and wonderful as you go on. And you see, a Christian is really a spiritual nuclear power station. You had the same thought with Major Thomas talking about the branch in the vine. The branches don't produce the fruit, they bear the fruit. Christians don't produce the power, you release the power. The power already exists. Jesus said, all power is given unto me in heaven and on earth, and lo, I am with you on Sunday morning. I am with you when? Always. So indwelling me is the one who has all the power in all of heaven and earth. All the power is in me. All I have to do is to release the power that already exists. And the Christian life is really releasing power which already exists. And if you go into a nuclear power station, I went into one at, uh, down on the way from Los Angeles to uh, San Diego. Oh, San, San Ofri, San Ofri power station. You walk in there, uh, you find doctors walking around. At least they look like doctors, they've got white coats on. They're engineers. And you listen, and there's no noise like this. This is just switched off, you see? 
I demonstrated for me exactly what I wanted. Uh, there's no noise. Because where God is concerned, there's no hustle, rush, noise. As you heard the other day, there's no sweat. It's just a release of a power which already exists. I was with a little boy with um, a sunny sun last night looking up at the stars. And I said, look at all those millions of stars. I said, listen to how much noise they're making. No sound. There's no sound from the stars. When God did his best, it's so silent. And uh, the Lord said, you receive power. And then you will be. You'll receive the power, and from that moment, then you'll be witnesses unto me. So that's the promise, and that's the power. Now the plan. The Lord said, you will be witnesses unto me. Now we have brainwashed ourselves in many cases to believe that being a witness is going round with the little four spiritual laws. Now, I'm not mocking it, because I've worked with them, and I love Bill Bright, and I'm behind all he does. In no way am I mocking it, God forbid. But we can be brainwashed into thinking that witnessing is going around talking. We're going around talking to people, and uh, we talk to people about Jesus. That's fine. But Jesus didn't say, you'll go around talking about me. He said, you, the whole of you, will be a witness of me. And that's where we fail. It's like with Isaiah the other, the other time. First of all, it's the holiness of God. I begin with the holiness of God. Then my walk is a reflection of the holiness of God. And then my work is the outcome of my walk, which is my worship. See, if you haven't got a life to back up what you say, well, back off until you have. Because some of the greatest damage done today is not done by the atheists, but by the so-called Christians. I, I'm positive in my mind that many people who have, quote, rejected Christ, they haven't rejected Christ. They've rejected the caricature they see of Christ in the lives of some Christians. You will be a witness of me. The way you dress, the way you walk, the way you eat, the places you go to. You can go right down the whole line. I needn't do that. You can, you can just take your whole life to pieces. And you are a witness to me. Yes, but don't miss this point. You shall be witnesses unto me. Now, who is the me who's speaking here? What Jesus, you say? Ah, but which Jesus is speaking here? It's the risen, victorious Christ. And somehow, the church has missed that. The church has missed the simplicity of this you will be witnesses of me, the risen, victorious Christ. All that you do, all that you are, will demonstrate the risen, victorious Christ. 
The whole emphasis is on the risen, victorious Christ. Jesus said so. It wasn't Paul or Peter. The Lord said so himself. Just like all the way through these messages, the Lord said, repent, repent, all the way through. It's what he said. And he said, come, take, learn, find. And so he said, you'd be witnesses unto me. I was thinking in between these sessions as I was meditating on this. You know, the Greek word for witness is the same word for martyr. I'm sure if Sonny, in an absent-minded moment, put a notice on the, on the student's board saying, I'm going to take a class for those who want to be trained as martyrs, please sign up down below. Uh, you might sign up to be a wit trained as a witness, but you wouldn't sign up to be trained to be a martyr because a martyr is somebody who dies. But as I was thinking in my room over here, th that, that's just, that's really true. A real witness is somebody who has become a martyr, somebody who has died. Like Paul, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I'm alive, yet not I. But Christ is living in me. There needs to be a quality of martyrdom in my witnessing which is demonstrated by not I, but Christ. Witnesses of me, the living Christ. Now, what I want you to see now is how faithful the early church was to what the Lord said. And in a little while, we'll see how unfaithful we are today. Look with me in the same chapter. A verse, oh, it begins about... Uh, verse 15 where they're going to start choosing a successor to Judas Iscariot verse 21 wherefore of these men which have accompanied with us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us notice please how they refer they talk of the Lord Jesus I, I, I like I, I wish I could remember always to talk of the Lord Jesus May I be kind of personal in this way? I've been, uh, I've seen in American newspapers, for example, I'm English, you know, I'm a royalist, I'm right behind the royal family, and the queen to me is a very special lady. And to me, she is Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth. And I read in American papers, uh, Elizabeth, or sometimes Liz. And uh, you, you may laugh, but I don't laugh. That hurts me. Uh, it's despicable. She may be Liz to you, but to me, she's Her Majesty, Queen Elizabeth II. Honor to whom honor is due. And if we give so much honor and respect to humans, how about the blessed Lord himself? They called him the Lord Jesus. His full title is Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I wish I could always get used to calling him the Lord Jesus. I used to, until I started singing so many modern songs and choruses, and they all go on about Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And I, I, I wish we could concentrate on the Lord Jesus. Put him where he belongs. Don't drag him down. Put him where he belongs. The Lord Jesus. So, he says here, that's just, by the way, a personal thought of mine. 
Wherefore of those men which have camped with us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John unto that same day that he was taken from up from us, must one be ordained. Now, here they're going to have an ordination service. The first time anybody is going to be ordained into the Christian ministry. And please notice, on the one condition of ordination, ordained to, with us to be a, ordained to be a witness, there's the word witness, a witness with us of his resurrection. The only requirement for ordination on this first ordination service was the man was ordained to be a witness of the resurrection. Isn't it strange how you find, quote, ordained men today who don't believe in the resurrection, who deny it? In the early church, the first man, it wasn't which college he'd been to, or how many degrees he had, or what, or how much schooling, nothing, whatever. What job he had, the only thing that was asked was, could he be a witness of the risen Christ? And that was it. Now, look in chapter 2. And Peter preaches his first tremendous message. Uh, I'm, remember, we're looking to see now how faithful these men were to the Lord. The Lord said, you will be witnesses unto me, the risen, victorious Christ. Now, we're seeing how they preached. And so, Peter's preaching in, Gen in Acts chapter 2 and uh, verse 30 He's talking about David, King David, therefore being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we all are witnesses. That's the climax. He's pointing to the risen Christ. We all are witnesses to the risen Christ. Now, why did Peter say that? Because Jesus told him to. That's all. So simple. Because he was told to. Chapter 3. Peter and John on the way to the temple. The lame man is healed. A crowd gathers. Peter has an open-air meeting. And he goes on, uh, verse 13 the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, the God of our fathers, hath glorified his son Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied him in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. You denied the Holy One and the just. You desired a murderer to be granted unto you. You killed the prince of life, whom God hath raised from the dead, whereof we are witnesses. See, the whole punchline was we're witnesses to the risen Christ. Chapter 4, verse 1 is the same incident. As they spake unto the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, the Sadducees came upon them, being grieved that they taught the people and preached through Jesus the resurrection from the dead. The whole message they had was the risen Christ. Notice this is what grieved the big shot. They wouldn't have minded them preaching the cross. They put him there. 
What they didn't like was the preaching of the risen Christ. And the same chapter 4. Look at verse 33 or verse 32. Here you have for a few moments in time a perfect church. Didn't last very long. But there, for a little while there was a perfect church on earth. Verse 32. And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul. Neither said any of them that the thought of the things which he possessed was his own. They had all things common. And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. Notice the two things characteristic of this great church. There was great power and there was great grace. The two things any, all churches are crying out for today is great power and great grace. But see what was the, the reason for that. They were witnessing of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. They were simply emphasizing, they were presenting the risen victorious Christ. Chapter 5. They're put in prison. And uh, verse 17. The high priest rose up and all they that were with him, which is a sect of the Sadducees, were filled with indignation, laid their hands on the apostles, put them in the common prison. But the angel of the Lord by night opened the prison doors and brought them forth and said, and these are the words you need for any service of ordination or commendation, the words of the angel. Go, stand, speak in the temple to the people all the words of this life. Not all the words of this death. And if, you're, if your ears are attuned, you will be realizing now that a lot of evangelism today concentrates on the death, all the words of this death. You'll see in a moment the, the true analysis of this. You'll go, go, marvelous words, angelic commendation, go, stand, speak in the temple to the people all the words of this life. Go on talking about the risen Christ. Go on talking about his mighty power. Go on talking about him. You see, Peter might have wondered whether he'd back to loser getting in prison like this. But no, the angel says, no way, out you go and keep on with it. This great life. And then in verse 29, they're in trouble again. They're brought back to before the judges. And uh, verse 29, then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus whom you slew and hanged on a tree. Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things and so also is the Holy Ghost, Holy Spirit. So Peter said, I'm not alone in this business. The Holy Spirit's in the same business. We're just promoting the risen victorious Christ. And uh, you could go on and on. Look in uh, Acts 13. I was just looking at this in the interval between. I got really excited. Acts chapter 13. You had a good deal about Paul from Major Thomas in these recent messages. Now here's Paul on fire now. Verse 26. He's at Antioch. Speaking. 
men and brethren, children of the stock of Abraham, and whosoever among you feareth God. That includes all the Gentiles, too. To you is the word of this salvation sent. So he's now going to present God's salvation. Verse, uh, you can go on how he talks about the crucifixion of our Lord. Verse 29, when they had fulfilled all that was written of, written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a sepulcher. But God raised him from the dead. And he was seen many days of them which came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses unto the people. Now, notice these next two verses. We declare unto you glad tidings. Now, this is what the real glad tidings are. How that the promise which was made unto the fathers, God hath fulfilled the same unto us, their children, in that he hath raised up Jesus again. So simple. The promise of salvation was fulfilled in the resurrection, not in the crucifixion. It was fulfilled in the resurrection. And that's what the glad tidings is. As it is also written, here's a tremendous thought in the second half of verse 33. As it is also written in the second psalm, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Fascinating. This day, which day? The day of resurrection have I begotten thee. And if you stop and think, you suddenly realize that the Lord Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but he was begotten in resurrection. There's so much truth in all this. We, we could have a conference over and over again on these thoughts itself. But here it is. This tremendous emphasis of the early church on the begotten Son, the risen Christ. Uh, that, that's Paul preaching, by the way. Now, look with me in uh, chapter 17. Now, here he's talking to uh, a bunch of pagans this time, real pagans, the PhDs of his day, the philosophers. In uh, Athens, Mars Hill, verse 29. For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone graven by art and man's device. And the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Now, we had that verse the other day talking about repentance, but he goes on. Because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained whereof he hath given assurance unto all men in that he hath raised him from the dead. Even to a bunch of pagan philosophers, PhDs, Paul was consistent like, like Peter, like John, like whoever it may be, the risen Christ is the answer. And notice, please, the resurrection is a proof of judgment to come. Not only a proof of joy for the present, but of judgment to come. If you ever have a chance sometime and you get hold of Wesley's journals, uh, don't read them unless you have a lot of time to spare. But you pick up one or two pages and you'll find as he went through England for over 50 years preaching the gospel, 
It's so beautiful how he would uh, write it down in his diary. He would say, I came to say comfort, I came to comfort, and I offered Jesus. He never said, I preached the gospel. He said, I offered Jesus. He offered Christ. He offered. This is what they did in the early church. They offered the Lord Jesus. First by his reconciling death, then by his saving life. And you see, they culminated in the saving life. As we've seen, and you can find elsewhere, they, they emphasized the risen, victorious Christ. Now, why did they do that? Simply because Jesus said to them, you will be witnesses of me. And so they were faithful. Now, let me continue the illustration I meant before. Much of the evangelism today zeroes in on the cross. Now, thank God a million times that it does. Thank God a million times that it does. Where you emphasize the cross. But the evangelism of the early church culminated in the resurrection. Now, you cannot preach the resurrection without preaching the cross. But you can preach the cross without preaching the resurrection. You cannot preach the saving life of Christ without preaching the reconciling death of Christ. But you can preach the reconciling death of Christ without preaching the saving life of Christ. And by and large, that's what many of our good churches are doing. Thank God they're preaching the gospel. But they've forgotten what the Lord Jesus said. You'll be a witness to me, the risen victorious Christ. I find this is so simple to realize what they did and what we did and what the Lord said. And so what do you do? You just do what he said and offer to men and women the risen victorious Christ or a total Christ. You are complete in Christ, reconciled by his death and saved by his life. And I'm back in Acts 2 again. We've looked at the promise and the power and the plan. Now, just a few moments for the program. Look in John chapter 12. Verse 20. There were certain Greeks among them which came up to worship at the feast. The same came therefore to Philip, which was of Bethsaida of Galilee, desired him, saying, Sir, we would see Jesus. Philip cometh and telleth Andrew. Again Andrew and Philip tell Jesus. Jesus answered them saying, The hour is come. If you're a Bible student, just check through your New Testament. You see it in John's Gospel. You'll see several times, His hour was not yet come. His hour was not yet come. His hour was not yet come. Then you come to this verse and the Lord says, The hour is come. Marvelous Bible study. The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Now, notice verse 24. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit, which is the same as we heard of the vine. If the branches abide in the vine, they bring forth much fruit. 
Here our Lord is talking of himself. He is the heavenly corn of wheat, the heavenly grain of wheat, that fell into the ground and died. And the much fruit, we are part of that much fruit today in his hill here. But that isn't the verse I really wanted. It's verse, 20, verse 25. He that loveth his life shall lose it. He that hateth his life in this world shall keep it to life eternal. Verse 26. If any man serve me, let him follow me. Now I put 26 along with 24. He except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. If it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. And the Lord Jesus demonstrated that by going into the ground, dying, bringing forth much fruit. Then he says in verse 26, if you really want to serve me, what? What? Follow me. Where? Where? Into the ground into the ground. If you want to follow me, if you want to serve me, follow me into the ground, into death. The same thing Major Thomas was talking about in the last session. Galatians 2.20 I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I'm alive because he's alive. The life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son who loved me. He gave himself for me. Let me remind you again of Galatians 2.21. I said it the other day. Talking of the risen victorious Christ indwelling you. I do not treat God's gracious gift as something of minor importance. And so defeat its very purpose. And so much of preaching today treats God's gracious gift as something of minor importance. They all believe in the resurrection. <clears throat> they sing it. You ask me how, how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. What difference does it make? None. Because we've forgotten. Jesus said, you will be a witness of me. Not only preaching me, but living me. Allowing me to live in and take over. And so, what's missing in my Christian life? The missing experience. I am complete in Christ. So that he can be complete in me. The missing word. Repentance. I empty my life of the garbage. So he can fill it with all his fullness. The missing name. Emmanuel. Jesus. You call his name Jesus. They call his name Emmanuel. We major in the name Jesus. And we Treat the name Emmanuel as something of minor importance. How many hymns do we sing about Emmanuel? The missing privilege to go to the same school that Jesus went to, to suffer, to be made complete, to learn obedience. The missing rest, come, take, learn of me, then you find rest. The missing success, Regardless of the consequences, the missing thanksgiving, I will take, I will pay, I will offer. And the missing witness, you shall be witnesses of me, the risen, victorious Christ. It's so simple, it's so obvious. 
when you see it. Now let's come to the most important part of the whole of this message. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? And for 60 seconds, we'll be absolutely quiet and peaceful. And Sonny, could you turn that gizmo off, please? That's right. Be absolutely quiet and peaceful. And the Lord will come to you in all his risen power. He'll say, how about it? You've taken all the riches of my resurrection, of my reconciling death, my reconciling death. Now, how about my saving life? You to be a witness of me. The whole thing comes together. You can either say, yes, Lord. You daren't say, no, Lord. You can just switch him off like you've done before and just think about something else. But I trust there'll be some of us here who, having been exposed to truth this Thanksgiving time, will say, yes, Lord, take over. Lord, I'll make many mistakes, I know, but you'll understand. I want your life. I want to be a witness in life and in lip and limb of the risen, victorious Christ. So let's have 60 seconds of quietness from now and see what happens. Thank you, blessed Lord, you. You never saved us to be a bunch of failures. You saved us to demonstrate your life, to re-echo, to display the life of Christ made manifest through my mortal flesh, through our mortal flesh. Lord Jesus, you deserve, oh, how worthy you are. We sing hymns about ascribing to you all the worthiness and the honor. And all you want is not the words, not the worship, but just ourselves. Lord, may there be someone, I pray for those by tape too, may someone's heart be stirred and motivated to release you through their yielded lives they becoming spiritual nuclear power stations, receiving power, not to produce it, but to release it. May it be so, for your dear name's sake. Amen.